At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. My sense is, and it really has nothing to do with data at all, has to do with culture. So the people and the processes and policies, I know we hear that all the time, but I believe in that, that you have to have consistency in your leadership and your organization on what you're trying to do. And many states get it wrong because they flip people in and out of roles. And so you have inconsistency in policy delivery and the processes change and the people change. And when that happens, we get the dysfunctional piece of government that we all like to complain about. And it's not on purpose. I mean, they all go into it with the same desire to provide services to the public as best as possible. But inherently, people change or the policies change. And in return, it either delays or changes the progress on a program. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. As I think most of us know, data runs the world, and governments have lots of data, and it represents a significant source of value for both the public and private sector, if used effectively, and keeping in mind ever-increasing requirements with regard to data protection and privacy. Data can simplify delivery of public services, reduce fraud and human error, and catalyze massive operational efficiencies. Despite these potential benefits, governments around the world remain largely unable to capture the opportunity. The key reason? Data is typically dispersed across a fragmented landscape of systems, which are managed in organizational silos. And even more than that, they have absolutely no way to measure the health of their data and how well it supports their mission objectives. And the consequence is digital government is inhibited and citizens have little transparency on what data the government stores about them or how it's used. But progress is definitely being made thanks to innovations happening in the commercial sector. And one company doing some really cool things is Talent. So I thought it would be fun to bring out Tom Skurlock, their regional vice president for federal and state and local government, to have a discussion around what's happening in government in context to all things data and understand some cool ways he's seeing government leverage technology to drive citizen-facing value. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. You know, I've been looking in the market where talent kind of plays, and it's an exciting one, and, and we're going to get into it, and we're going to talk all about data uh, and trust scores and, and all of that. It's going to be a really informational session, but I really want to start with something that I saw in your background, and I have to bring it, I have to, bring it to the attention of the listeners, where you 
covered college football and the Big Ten and most specifically the Ohio State Buckeyes for Bleacher Report and Fan Side, which is pretty cool. I'm a big sports fan. How did you get into that, and what was that experience like? Well, it's a fantastic experience. Uh, I started as a journalist in high school. Uh, I was always an athlete, and and I was the sports editor of my college newspaper because they needed one because they lacked one. Uh, they were just copying kind of the suburban paper into the school paper. So that wasn't any good. And it just carried out when I finished grad school. Um, I covered uh, sports locally uh, in Ohio and then it went national. So as Bleacher Report was starting to build out in the early 2000s, I got asked to join and cover the Big Ten and national and then uh, more specifically, Ohio State, then it kind of branched out to a few other publications. But it, I've always been a diehard college football fan. I cover basketball as well occasionally, uh, but for the better part of 30 years, covered both um, nationally and down into the Big Ten, which is kind of my favorite conference to cover. Very cool. So, I mean, if you covered basketball, this is probably one of your favorite times of the year, right? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, this has been an exciting tournament uh for many different reasons but i'm not shocked that where we're at because this season was just so unusual from who was strong and who wasn't um i'm a little surprised that the big 12 didn't do better inside the tournament but um you know we got a great four teams now it's time to find out who's going to win it all i was out in sacramento actually during the first round um, speaking at an event, and the hotel that we stayed in had a lot of Arizona fans staying because they played right down the street, like two or three blocks away yeah. from the hotel, and saw a lot of really sad Arizona fans coming back into the into the hotel that afternoon, that night. So it, it was definitely one for the record books, I think, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it, you just never know. I mean, it's a it's a six game test, but I was shocked that Arizona lost so early. Um, I favored the Big 12, um, but I just think it's the best conference, but that doesn't necessarily play out in the tournament. And Depth usually is key and senior guard play. And But we've just seen some – I'm not shocked that Miami and San Diego State are there. I mean, they just – they've had really good seasons, but a little bit under the radar. So – to me, that that's kind of – I'm not shocked by that. I thought Texas might win it all, but, <laughs> you know, it's a crapshoot. And, you know, here we go. We're going to find out. And the women's tournament has been equal. Uh, I don't want to just talk about men's. The The women's tournament's been fantastic. Obviously, oh, South we're Carolina is the – We're a hokey household, so we've been following the women's yeah, well, tournament. Yeah, they beat my sure. Buckeyes last night. Yep. Um, it was a good game, but the Hokies are strong. and. Uh, uh, it's going to be tough to dethrone South Carolina. Um, they're just so strong, but everybody needs to watch that Iowa-South Carolina game. I mean, that's just going to be so good. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to I'm gonna pivot us yeah, away from basketball. And we can, we can yeah, talk we about this for an hour. But yep. um, what, before we kind of jump into this, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about talent, what you guys do, what your specialty is, and, and how you're different from some of the – some of the other folks in this data data space? Sure. Um, great question. Uh, 
the talent's been around for a while now. We're sometimes get called legacy because we're been around for about 18 years and we're a global leader in data integration and data management. And what that kind of means is we're really uh, the only end-to-end platform that kind of combines ingestion, integration, integrity, and governance with some API and data services. And we can do it in any type of environment, whether it's on-prem, cloud, hybrid, or multi-cloud. And the net of that is where we're different is we can do it all in one platform. So some technologies might play just in the integration space. Some might just play in the data services space. Some might play um, in the data governance space, but very few, if any, can play in all three. So when you you get talent, you're getting that end-to-end platform so you don't have to continue to add technologies to meet the solution or the program need. Um, we don't do it alone. We certainly have our partners, the cloud partners, technology partners, but when it comes to data management, we're the one that can do everything. Let me ask you this. I feel like it's been a trend very recently, especially through M&A, where end-to-end platforms within whatever market you're in are really what's needed to be successful, right? So you guys are that end-to-end data platform. I think, well, actually, let me ask you this. I mean, do you think that there's a reason why government really prefers that that holistic approach versus that kind of broken up technology. I mean, I've seen some where you say, well, I'm going to go best of breed in each and every single nuance of this, or I'm going to work with a company that has it all in one place and I can work with them more strategically. Do you think that's one of the values that government's really seeing out of this? I mean, again, not just in the data space, but across the board and everything they're looking at. Well, some of it's the predictability to it because they don't move as quickly and it takes a long time to come to the solution that's going to meet the program need. So the more technologies you have, the more you have to negotiate. And some of the niche technology players, which are very good at what they do, you maybe aren't moving as fast or can't meet everything. So they don't want to have to do 15, 20 different procurements. They'd rather do one knowing that it's best in breed. So for me, I see it more in that because Talon is a great partner with the clouds and we're a great partner with other technologies like Snowflake and Databricks and um, some of the like in, in that space, cloud data warehousing. So it's easy because you don't have to go out and get three or four other technologies to make it work. So for me, it's more around predictability and then the cost with that. So you're not negotiating, you know, many different times over um, to meet the need. And based on your partners, it sounds like, I mean, part of that value is being able to allow government entities to leverage their pre-existing investments, right? If they're using Databricks already or they're using Snowflake, like a lot of government agencies are, it just kind of plugs in. And I think that's one of the biggest narratives that I know, even when I'm working with governments, is taking a look at what they've already purchased and what they're already embedding into their ecosystem and making sure that whatever I'm bringing to them can show maximum investment into what they're already deploying, right? Because exactly. the days of 100%. just rip and replace and doing that are, are just gone. 100%. They want to utilize what they have already and when there's a need for a new technology 
for maybe a, a different use case, they want to make sure that it fits in well, that the puzzle isn't broken up just to make this work. And that uh, makes talent extremely valuable because our technology partners, as well as our systems integrator uh, partners, we fit well into any ecosystem when it comes to a, a data type of uh, use case. Let me ask you this. I feel like a common narrative around data, is, and not even just government, this could be across any sector, but I feel like we're constantly hearing that these organizations need to do more with the data that they have, right? I mean, we can say especially government mainly because of the amount of data, right? They're the largest creators and disseminators and consumers of data. Um, I, I'm curious to know, what are some of the ways that you're seeing governments leverage data to do more within trying to meet mission requirements? Really good question. I mean, it, it really goes into a few different use cases, but Go down into the state level, for example, a lot of you got DMVs or transportation or you got human services dealing with eligibility for um, government programs. That's where they're trying to do it because their legacy systems aren't capable to delivering the services that they're trying to provide to the public and be good stewards of the taxpayer dollars. So for me, what I'm seeing at down in the state and local level is really around innate, uh, accelerating their operations and enabling their analytic systems so they can be more responsive to the public. Um, DMVs are doing that across the United States right now. Um, so to improve the customer experience, because we all know what it's like uh, to go into a DMV, it can be a challenge, but I I've had, I've, only been fortunate to have two separate IDs, one in Ohio and one in Maryland. Maryland's great. Ohio's a disaster. And a lot of it comes down to the systems that they're using. Some of them haven't modernized and others have. So um, a lot of the larger states out west, they're going through this right now. And aside, um, kind of a, a sidebar to that is there's so much data in the DMVs and uh, departments of transportation that other uh, agencies can leverage. So the data sharing becomes the next piece of that. Now, agencies don't necessarily like to share, but CIOs and CDOs definitely have a long-term goal of interagency sharing of that data so they can be more responsive to uh, the needs of the public. My wife has been looking for her wallet for the past couple of days, and she finally broke down yesterday morning and had to go through and uh, apply for, for her new credit cards again to get, get them shipped back out and also her driver's license. And thankfully, we live in Virginia where it's, it's not a terrible situation. But um, like you said, some of the, some of the larger states or the, the, the states that have prioritized some, some of these systems um, have, have made it a little bit more seamless. Now, just a little bit more seamless. I think it, it, you were still not at a point where the the government experience is rivaling things like Amazon or or your Target or or whatever type of consumer facing engagements that you have. But I think the the inner workings of the system, which I think is where government has placed their priority and, and rightfully so, the inner workings of the system seem to be seem to be working. 
What do you think it's going to take for them to get to a point where they're going to be rivaling some of those major consumer-based engagements that we have? That's a phenomenal question. And my sense is, and it really has nothing to do with data at all, has to do with culture. So the people and the processes and policies, I know we hear that all the time, but I believe in that, that you have to have consistency in your leadership and your organization on what you're trying to do. And many states get it wrong because they flip people in and out of roles. And so you have inconsistency in policy delivery and the processes change and the people change. And when that happens, we get the dysfunctional piece of government that we all like to complain about. And it's not on purpose. I mean, they all go into it with the same desire to provide services to the public as best as possible. But inherently, people change or the policies change. And in return, it either delays or changes the progress on a program. So unless you get that piece of it right and it stays consistent, so you have a kind of a, a culture that's based on data and delivery, then it'll still remain the way it is. And in the private sector, we see consistency there. We see best practices implemented a little bit more quickly because they're more nimble. Uh, they don't have to deal with some of the things that um, the uh, Fed or state agencies have to deal with from a regulatory standpoint. So they're able to move a little bit more quickly and stay consistent. But for me, it's all around that. When they're, If they could just, the states that can maintain their policies and procedures tend to be on the forefront of the more innovative uh, ways of delivering services to the public. I'm glad you brought up culture. I was looking at a video the other day and it was a little bit tongue in cheek, but I think it really is pretty profound. It was an older video of Jeff Bezos at a conference and they had a little, little ticker for the number of times that he said customer in various statements that he was making. And it was obviously the point of the video was to show how insane it was, how, how hyper-focused he is on the customer, but it really speaks to, I mean, when we talk about some of the premier consumer facing engagements that we have, Amazon is generally at the top of the list. It's not just because we all use it, but we all use it because it's so good, but it's because they have that customer focus, right? That customer obsession to, to steal their word. And I, I think building an identity around being citizen focused, right? Exactly. Getting getting the services into the hands of the citizens the way they need them, the way they want them, meeting the citizen where they are. If you can build an identity and a culture around that, I agree with you. I think that's what's really going to change the game. And that's why kind of broadband connectivity and uh, cloud modernization for the application development are really when you hear CIOs and CDOs talk about their priorities, it, they those tend to bubble up. Obviously, cyber is probably number one because we all want to protect our systems and our people. But the modernization and broadband are so relevant so they can deliver those services anywhere the citizen might be. And right now, there's gaps in that in many states. I don't know how many it is, but just take from West Virginia over to Nevada. There's a lot of rural states that still lack 
the connectivity that's necessary to deliver those services the way the commercial does, the commercial side does. Let's stay on cyber for a second, because my the question I wanted to, to ask you was, because we just covered customer experience, I wanted to know what other areas do you think the that data is really playing a pivotal role in kind of evolving how government thinks about things? And I think the fact that you brought cybersecurity up is, is perfect, because I think that's another really key area. Are there ways that you're seeing government leverage data to really enhance the, the levels of cybersecurity that they're, that they're driving and to really harden their, their systems from some of the, the attacks that they had been so vulnerable to in the past? Yeah, I mean, that's where the AI machine learning is going around that to be able to predict when there could be attacks or um, threats to their systems. So to me, that's where I see the most um, connection to cybersecurity from my side is really around the predictability of threats to the system. I forget what it is, how many times the Pentagon gets hit every day. It's insane um, the amount of times, but just being able to predict where there's vulnerabilities in the system, that's uh, probably at the top of the list that I'm seeing. And where it comes in with data is when you're feeding those models and training them, um, they're very complex. So if the data going in isn't clean or isn't good, then your model is going to be off. So that's where Talon has a play in this, although we don't have necessarily what we're not known for cybersecurity use cases. We are known in what's important for those use cases, which is data quality and the feeding of the systems that protect us. And if that's off, then your method of protecting your systems is going to be off. And that goes into, I mean, I'm not an expert on the zero trust, but that's really what that's about is making sure that there's every threat is, uh, is minimized. Yeah. I, I think the beauty of zero trust is really at the heart of it. It's exactly what we talked about. It's much more of a mindset or a culture shift yes. than, than it is about the technology. Right. So I think it just goes to show that an initiative that big is really centered around getting getting people and practices and, and culture really in place to drive that forward. And you talked about data integrity. I want to ask you a little bit. I, I've, I saw something around the talent trust score and I'm I'm in marketing. I, I can see I can spot a marketing uh, kind of slogan type type of naming convention a mile away. But I think you guys have hit on something because. Data integrity is paramount. One of the things that uh, that I would tell some of my customers when I was when I was working um, at OpenText was, I know data governance isn't really or, or records management isn't really sexy, but at the end of the day, organizations leveraging their data is really where we're going. We're, we're this was at a time where we were going there. We're there now, but if you can't if you can't trust the hygiene around the data that you're leveraging and getting those informational insights out of that data, if you can't trust it at its core, then really it, it's, it's worthless. So what, how do you kind of drive trust within data sets that government can, can use to their advantage? Sure. I mean, it's just a few of our tools within the governance platform or piece of the platform where an integration platform that we come in and we're able to, assess your data as it is right now and assign 
a trust score to it. And you're right, plenty of others have, have flavors of this, but this is a very complete and robust using our tools to say, okay, based on where you're at right now, your trust score is 70%, which actually would put it higher than what most um, how CEO, CEOs would rate their systems right now. But let's just say baseline 70%. And then we have a path to say, okay, here's what you need to do to get to 90%. And if you have 90% as a trust score, you're like a rock star. I mean, it's just, that means you're really hitting it. But we just come in and we do the assessment. We apply the logic. We come, it comes up with the score and you can see, I mean, we've got the whole formula and the diagrams to show how it is. Um, and then the path to getting it to where it's complete. And basically that's just cleaning it up and, and showing where the vulnerabilities are and where, whether it's deduplication, whether it's um, things are missing here and you need to report here. If we just come in and we identify where the vulnerabilities are in your data and what's causing the score to be too low. So the flip side of that, and that's going to help if you're spending money on analytics and you're doing a, let's say you will call it citizen 360 or customer 360 initiative. When you're spending money from a marketing standpoint on that, you want to make sure that your return on it's good. Well, if your data is not clean, then maybe you're marketing to the wrong audience. Or if you're responsible for child support and um, there's somebody that's eligible that's not getting the service, that's a problem. And so for us, that's where the trust score comes in. And yes, it's a, it's a marketing slogan, but it's also a very strong product for us that our customers really like because it's accurate. And um, we give them a path to improving it to a level that's more acceptable and can deliver more return. And that's the piece, honestly, that, that when you said that is, is really cool, is not only is it saying, hey, this is what your trust score is, but here's, here's a remediation path to get to. So if, if you're at 70 and you want to get to 90, this is the remediation path you need to take to get there. I can imagine that this is incredibly helpful when you're working with government because everybody's being asked to do less with more, right? So taking the time to do that analysis using the kind of the, the algorithm that you guys have to be able to show that path, identify the, the data that is, is kind of reducing that trust score and identify that for them immediately and, and show them a path to get there has to be vitally important to their strategy, right? Absolutely. I mean, you imagine uh, a CIO going before a congressional committee and having to justify you know, their existence and what they're doing, which happens a lot. And you can show them, I mean, this is a little simplified, but hey, we've run the analysis and this is where we're at. And like today, and then six months from now, you come back and say, hey, we were at 65. Now we're at 80% confidence on what we're doing. That's a measurable improvement that you can go back to whoever you're reporting to. So if it's Commercial could be the CIO, CDO, CEO, board, or if it's public, you know, same thing or before a regulatory committee and say, look, we're improving. That's that's a positive outcome that demonstrates the power of what talent can do for an organization. Another another piece of this that we haven't discussed, I think you mentioned it earlier, but we haven't really 
kind of delved deep into it yet is around AI and automation. And while we're on that topic of doing more with less, I think government's done a really good job, I think, over the past 10 years in, in kind of understanding AI and its value and bringing that on board to kind of help them, especially with the unstructured data side of things, but to wrap their arms around all this data to get information out of it. So how are you seeing, more specifically, kind of federal government leaders leveraging AI and, and even automation, like I said, to speed the, the manual tasks that they have around data management and to really get to the heart of what all of this data is for, which is to make data-driven decisions? This, this is one of my favorite questions and favorite topics to discuss. And every agency is handling it a little bit differently. But I like what maybe the CDC and NIH are doing and what DOD is doing. So I'll start with the Department of Defense. You know, they, they protect us and they use a lot of equipment and they have a lot of supplies out there. They need to have very strong predictive capabilities on, okay, here's where we need to send our troops. Here's where we need to send our equipment. Here's what's failing at the edge. Here's the information that's coming back. Can they predict so they can move people around or protect here? I love all that because you can see the impact right now. It's predictable. It's a lot of the edge technology coming back and knowing where to go. Same thing for healthcare-related agencies. We just went through, we're still in the midst of the pandemic, but we're getting smarter because we have all that data that allows us to predict, okay, where do supplies need to go? Where are hospitals overrun? Where are, is there a larger concentration of the public compared to the norm where we're seeing issues? And so what's happening I saw something the other day that's happening down in Mississippi with an increase and they knew this was coming. So they have resources down there already to help alleviate some of the crunch that's coming to the public health officials down there and people who serve the public. So when it, that's where I see it the most is in healthcare and DOD. Now it's all over the place. So, because everyone's trying to get smarter and, and um, just be quicker with decisions and being able to move. Uh, Homeland Security is another one with border control. So can uh, Customs uh, Border Patrol share information with the Coast Guard and can they use the same system? So there's plenty of examples, but my favorite are always around what um, the Navy and DOD are doing at the tactical edge and uh, what our healthcare uh, leaders are doing to predict uh, where resources are going to be needed so we can contain public health issues. I mean, uh, all those use, use cases that you just mentioned, it really personifies exactly why I love working in this market, right? Because you have data sources from so many different things that government does, right? You touched on Department of Defense, you touched on healthcare. Um, there's a myriad of things that we could look at. Government is really the, the industry of industries in terms of what they do. And I think when you take a look at data, there's unique data sets are, are certainly something that every government agency has that they're able to pull insights out of, which is why I think leveraging AI 
because there there are no two data sets that are the same that are alike that because they're all kind of proprietary to that to that agency and what their mission is so i think it's it's such a cool industry to work in and it really keeps it it really keeps it interesting in terms of how you can layer on technology and build a culture around getting to that ultimate unique mission of each agency exactly um, so we kind it, of haven't touched on cities and counties too much, but correct, correct. I think they're more at the forefront of AI and um, than states and the feds. And a simple one is around. Uh, we see it, we don't see it so much in Maryland anymore, but you know, snow removal, or you see it in transportation movement, like for subway systems or buses to predict. You know, where are we going to be down? Um, where do we need to move different parts of the public? So for me, cities and counties have the ability to move even more quickly. Um, and, or it could be a public safety issue as well, like where there's going to be threats to get, you know, the services there a lot more quickly. So we're seeing a lot more uptick uh, in those types of use cases at the city and county level. As we start to wrap up, I want to ask you one more question and then give you a chance to leave some final thoughts. But I'm really curious to know, as you kind of look more forward facing, what are your thoughts around where you think data is going to have some of the biggest impacts within government? And I know that's a big question and and there's there's so many areas you could focus on. But if you could pick one or two that you think it's going to have uh, have kind of really dramatic effects over the next few years. Where do you think that that could be, could be, not will be, but could be? This, this is an interesting question. And for me, I, I think the could and should are, are both together. And it's really around cyber. The, and I know it's easy to go to that use case, but it's so true. Just look at what happened with the balloon last month and how much stir it caused and what it was doing. But it's actually really relevant. Like our security now is in, our protection is not necessarily with forces, it's with data and it's having our systems protected. So whether it's financial and regulatory that our, we can have faith and trust in our financial systems, um, that obviously comes from the regulatory agencies that have authority over our uh, financial systems, our defense systems, so they can protect us so we don't get attacked or we're not spied on um, or we don't, you know, there's a whole slew of things that are coming. But for me, that's the, that's where the greatest impact's going to come is that for the public to have faith in our security and that everything's fine, it's going to come in the the financial sector, the regulatory sector, because that has such a big impact on the uh, on the public, and then also from uh, just a cyber protecting our system, so um, we don't get attacked. Because that can just, I mean, you know, we see it in the movies. It's obviously um, dramatized there, but in reality, that can happen. That you know. It's not nuclear anymore, although that's important based on what's happening in uh, Eastern Europe. But it's really around the protection of our systems. If those get attacked, think about the chaos that it can happen just with 
in, in 15 seconds if something goes down. You look at what happened to Southwest. Their systems are down. Boom. Chaos around Christmas. You look at what happened with SVP. Boom. A bank goes down. There's reasons for that, but that permeates the public's confidence in, in our systems and our um in, in our organizations and our uh, and with our leadership. So for me, it's really around the cyber security. That's where the greatest impact is going to be. I put you on the spot, and that was a that was a great answer. And I think the the ultimate theme of that is really driving citizen trust, which I think ultimately is what the overall mission of government really is: is to kind of bring bring trust in an era of kind of polarized, um, polarized citizen, uh, engagement. So I, I think that's a, a great answer and I couldn't agree more. I think security is definitely an area across all fronts, across all theaters, um, where it's going to have one of the biggest impacts. Tom, I, I really appreciate the time today. Any final thoughts you want to leave with our audience? Just that to, uh, give talent, uh, consideration for your data management projects and programs. Um, the speed of data is just incredible right now and the accumulation of it and making data decision or data driven decisions is critical. And we are one piece to the overall puzzle, but we're uh, a really good one. And we can help with what I consider the most important aspects of your data journey, which is supporting your people, supporting your processes, integrating with your policies, and working with your team and your partners to create the solution to meet the need. And that's Talent, T-A-L-E-N-D. And you can check them out at talent.com. Tom, thank you so much for, for being here. A lot of great insights. Always love getting the perspectives of, of uh, the commercial side and kind of what they're seeing because you guys work with so many different uh, government partners and, and you get a really broad swath of kind of what's really happening. So really grateful for the time today. Thank you. It's been great. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com or wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chizdrabe. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.